Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I was an assistant director in Hollywood for the better part of eight years, and now I'm not. Today, we're talking about Elizabethtown, a 2005 dramedy directed by Cameron Crowe and starring Orlando Bloom and Kirsten Dunst. Over at Rotten Tomatoes, its tomato meter score is 29%, and the critics' consensus reads, this story of a floundering shoe designer who returns home for a family tragedy gets lost in the undeveloped plot lines and lackluster performances. <sighs> but as always here on Below the Line, we're not concerned about what the critics think. Personally, I did work on Elizabethtown, but in a limited role. There's a major ballroom scene that involves practically all of the cast and about 200 background artists, and I worked as an additional second AD for that filming, which took about two weeks. I also came back out to help with a big farmer's market scene, although I think it might have been the California reshoots on that, and that was only one day, if I recall correctly, for me anyway. I also came back a couple of months after principal photography had wrapped to be the second second AD for three days of reshoots, which we had done at the Paramount lot. In retrospect, that was a pretty long explanation for why I might not have much to say today, but I'm sure my guests will fill any radio silence. First, Frank Tignini, welcome to Below the Line. Thank you, thank you for having me. Frank, glad you're here. You were one of the full-time, fully credited production assistants on Elizabethtown, but in looking over IMDb, it looks like Elizabethtown was one of your last PA credits before you started working full-time as an AD. What are you doing now? Uh, I'm currently uh, now production manager and uh, still working in film and television. Uh, Elizabethtown was my second to last PA job. I went on to another movie right after that, um, War of the Worlds, little name drop right there. And then uh, that was my last film. Um, as a PA, and then I became an assistant director after that. Well, congrats, Frank. I'm glad things have gone so well. And really Thank glad you're, you're on the show today. You know, we met back in, I think it was 2000, when you were just starting out as a PA. That's right. And I, and I was a trainee on That's Life, I think, yeah. the television show we did. And I think it's probably fair to say that when I was in LA, we ran in some of the same uh, professional and social circles. So, uh, But I haven't seen you in a while. It's nice that you could join the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. I also used to run with us in those same circles, uh, Helen Alexis Yanov. Alexis, welcome to Below the Line. Hello. Now, Alexis, you also worked as a PA on Elizabethtown, but as a day player rather than full time, although I think you did more time on the show than I did. Is that correct? Yes, I was there for two to three months, the LA unit, um, after they came back from being in Kentucky and the other states, and I was brought on by Frankie. Now, Alex, I want to ask you as well, in reviewing your IMDb page, it looks like you stopped working in film around the same time that I did, that 2006-2007 time period. What are you doing now? Um, around that time, I decided to stop uh, peeing. I didn't want to continue with the AD route. And I started shooting uh, short films and commercials and then ended up going to Paris in 2010 for seven years, just wanted to live outside of America and started shooting commercials there uh, for some LA companies. And I got the chance to come back here to finish uh, some projects and prep, a, develop a feature film. Well, good luck with that, Alexis. I hope it uh, goes well. Thank you. Our final guest today is Andy Fisher. Andy, welcome. Thanks, kid. So Andy, you're credited as an associate producer on Elizabethtown, and in reviewing your credits, it appears you've had a long history of working with Cameron Crowe, both before and after this movie. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I started uh, working for Cameron in uh, the 
uh, winter of 98 on Almost Famous. I was the casting assistant on that and then was brought on to be his assistant during, during production and stuck with Cameron and his production company through Roadies, which would have been uh, near the end of 2016. So I was with him for about 18 years. What are you working on now? Uh, I work for Warner Brothers Records in their archive department, kind of overseeing their visual archive with uh, promotional photos and uh, original artwork for records and stuff. Oh, well, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So let's dive into Elizabethtown. Let's talk first about the schedule overall. Alexis, you alluded to the fact that the company was out of town. Maybe Andy or Frank, you can give us some more information about how this shooting schedule was put together. Um, yeah, we started in um, Kentucky. I want to say it was Lexington. I think we were all at the Brown Hotel, if I remember. And um, we shot there for a good, pretty much half the, the shoot, uh, the entire shoot was um, on location, multiple states. And then we came back to LA for, for the final month or six weeks, maybe. Uh, we started in Lexington and then we shot in Louisville, Elizabethtown, all around the Kentucky area. And then um, the production had chartered the Minnesota Timberwolves, uh, like private plane. And so this is the time, like nowadays they don't do this, but you know, cause there's local crews everywhere, but we like brought the entire crew. So we had like pretty much everybody from California was there and we, um, loaded up on the plane. I think the first place we went to after that was maybe, um, we went to Tennessee. I know that we went to Nebraska, Scott's Bluff, Nebraska, and then we went to Arkansas. So we kind of like bopped around on this plane. We'd land, we'd shoot, and then we'd land. And we, there was like all the part of us shooting the big road trip that happens toward the end of the film. And then we ended up in, in LA. So it was, a, it was a movable circus for quite a while there. I think, uh, trying to remember, we, um, um, we went to all these like interesting, like iconic places, it, you know, like this dinosaur museum in Arkansas. We went to, you know, Memphis. I can't remember what we were filming in Memphis, but um, I mean, I, as, you know, the, the filming of the shoot was one of the, probably the best experiences of my life, but also like the after hours was also some of the best experience of my life too, because we went to all these great places and we really were with a great, like special group of people that we all really enjoyed hanging out with each other. You know, every time we'd landed in a new place, we just would, we would all like as a group explore and check out the towns and go see things. I mean, I saw Graceland, I saw you know, all the, you know, Beale Street in Memphis, I mean, places that I, I don't know that I would have gotten to in my own personal life, but um, it was pretty like an amazing experience in that, right? Just to tag on to what Frankie was talking about, uh, the road trip was kind of an amazing experience. And it's, it was uh, unlike anything we had ever done before with Cameron and, and since actually. And I feel like it was like five, four or five locations in 10 days. Yeah. Uh, on the road. And I feel, I think we, we left Kentucky and went to Arkansas and we did that dinosaur uh, attraction. And then I think we, or, or maybe we started in Memphis. I can't remember. It was one or the other. Um, and in Memphis we shot at, what was the name of that blues bar? It was a great blues bar. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. We also went to, was it Sun Records that was there? Was um we shot a little bit there. We shot a little bit at the um, at the hotel at the yeah, motel where where Martin Luther King was shot. Yeah, um, and then we shot at Ernestine and Hazel's in Memphis. That's right. Oh, and we also shot at a at a chili restaurant at a at a diner uh, yeah. in Memphis. And then I think from there we went to Oklahoma City, where we shot at the uh, at the bombing memorial. And then I think it was from there to Nebraska, and then back to L.A. And that road trip was amazing. And 
like Frank said, they, they chartered this jet, and I think 75 crew members were on, on the road with that, and except for me, who hated flying. So I literally <laughs> drove from every location uh, and, and met up with the crew. Like, I would show up at, like, 11.30 when call was 7 a.m., and I'd be like, <laughs> hey, guys. Uh, the only place I didn't get to was Nebraska because the trip was just too far, and I, I never would have made it in time. So I just drove straight back from – I think Oklahoma back to LA while everybody finished up in Nebraska. And then I met up with the crew when we started up in LA again, but that was that, that road trip was just incredible. But, but Andy, if you knew in advance, you didn't like to fly so much and Cameron's talking about doing this road trip movie, you, you didn't take the opportunity to talk him out of it or say, well, maybe it could just be around <laughs> LA or we could shoot LA for all these different places. Like that's a lot. Exactly. I'm like, look, dude, there's, you know, there's a, there's a memorial somewhere in LA that we could fake for, for Oklahoma city. We got to be able to do that. No, <laughs> you know, he had that in mind and it, it was great. And, and I was, uh, I was lucky enough to have a boss who was, who would put up with my shenanigans like that and would be like, you know, be there when you can and, and we'll, we'll worry about it if, uh, if you're not there. So. Well, you know, I want to dive a little deeper on that, Frank, what you alluded to. It is rare. I think that a crew for that sort of trip is going to take that many folks that are based out of LA. But I think it also helps if you're shooting that many locations in what is actually a pretty short period of time to have the crew coherence that you can take from place to place rather than having to spend any time on the road meeting new folks or figuring out, you know, how things are going to fit together. Yeah. I don't think you're able to achieve it without like actually bringing everybody. I mean, I think the, um, I want to say, I think it was Don Murphy was our executive producer. If, if my, um, Don, uh, Lee. Don, Don Lee, sorry. And, um, and Matt, his production supervisor, I'm blanking on his last name, but they, uh, they really, you, or that's right. Bedford, um, they really, um, you know, put into effect a really good plan. And, you know, Scott Robertson, who was our first assistant director, Sunday Stevens was our second AD, and Stephen, Stevie Bupre, we called him Stevie, but Stephen Bupre was our second second. You know, they all did this, had this monumental task of, of organizing this, this um, what we called, in, when, what the crew called the sojourn, you know, the journey through the South. And, um, you know, just to, from going from place to place, from loading up on the plane to landing in the next, location getting off the plane shooting and then going back to the hotels it was just a, a pretty impressive like logistical uh planning that they did and um i you know i was a pa on it so i didn't i you know i, I was responsible for a lot of the background and all that kind of stuff like i am way more involved in logistics today so i kind of was just along for the ride in terms of like the planning of everything i had to help facilitate their plans but at the same time it was really them that did it and they did a a phenomenal job. I mean, it went off without a hitch. They, we did things cause we were so much, we did so much road work and traveling that we, we built like an office in the back of a Chevy. I had a big old Xerox copier back there and we had electricians set up this power packs and we basically would do call sheets and schedules and prelims and all that stuff in the back of a car because we'd be just, we'd go out on the road and everyone would be just in vans for, you know, 10 to 12 hours while we're filming Orlando, you know, driving Orlando Bloom. And um, it was uh, it was pretty amazing experience. Like on every project I'm on now, like crew always plays the game. Like, what was your favorite job you ever did? What was your worst job you ever did? And Elizabethtown is always hands down one of the top two experiences. And and you know we'll probably like go goo goo gaga throughout this whole podcast about the experience. Just and it started I think on on Cameron's level because he's such a uh, a gentleman and a kind person, and you kind of see his. Um, 
you know, that in him in every interaction and he knew everybody's name and a lot of jobs that you're on, you know, like I, I um, mentioned, you know, War of the Worlds, it's such a big production. You don't really get to, I think I talked to Steven Spielberg maybe three times that whole job, but that was like seven, eight months. And Cameron, I talked to every single day, you know, and John Toller, our cinematographer, who I was in awe in before I started working on the job because of his work on The Thin Red Line you know, almost famous. And he's just, you know, anyone who knows of his work knows he's the best. It's just one of those great experiences all around. And I, um, you know, just to take that monumental task of taking a crew, especially that size to all these different places and to achieve what we did. It's, um, it's a special thing. And I know you mentioned like the, the Rotten Tomatoes thing and the reviews prior to that. And I'm glad you kind of did because for those of us that worked on, on films or, you know, not even just Elizabethtown, but things in general, that you, you know, people put so much heart and effort and there's so much goes into these movies that, you know, I'm one of those people, my, my friends joke that I like everything I see. And the reason is, and that's the truth, because even if it's like just, you know, Troll 2, this turkey of a film, people put their heart and soul into these things. And it's, 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 it's hard to like have someone just tear something down when you know, especially seeing it firsthand, how passionate people are. And, you know, Cameron was extremely passionate about this, this movie. And you could feel it. And even like just the experience, there was an onset DJ that just played music for everybody all day long. And he also played it to get the actors in the mood and it got the crew in the mood. And, you know, we had long hours, you know, and, but they never felt long. Like it was one of those jobs where I didn't want, like you always want rap. Like for the most part you're working, you're like, Oh God, when are we going to rap? I want to go home. And for that movie is one of the few, few jobs I've done. And I've been doing this almost 20 years that I, uh, I didn't care when we'd wrapped because it just even the filming was like hanging out with friends. And uh, it, uh, you know, I, I, I haven't had that since. And I hope I try to hopefully create that kind of atmosphere on my current jobs because I took that with me as I want people to, to want to be there. You know, and I think that's important. Well, as a note, Frank, we're going to put a pin in that and we're going to do a podcast with some crew from your current shooting stuff and we'll see whether you're doing that good job of that or not. And we'll, <laughs> we'll put that to the test. But, uh, but, but I do want to spend some more time talking about working with Cameron Crowe because I think you've suggested it and it does the atmosphere he sets really creates the environment for the kind of filmmaking you're talking about. Uh, let's start with you, Alexis. When you came on and I got back to LA, did you have a similar experience as far as working on Cameron's set? Yeah, I felt that everyone was a family. And I had worked with Frank on lots of different shows before that. But this one was specifically in my memory as my favorite experience on set ever. And like, even with Cameron, I remember coming back from, we were on uh, LA Center Studios and I was walking, I had to go through a stage or something and Cameron was walking ahead of me and I'm just walking and he opens the door and he's a good distance away from me and just stands there with the door open waiting for me to come up just to let me through. And I start to kind of like hurry up and run and he's like, no, 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 don't run. It's, it's okay. And he was just such, as Frank said, like such a gra uh, gracious, kind gentleman. Uh, and I'm just like this additional PA. And I always felt that I was in a place where he cared and everyone else cared about how we were. And Andy, every morning would like, I'd get a hug from him. And I always looked forward to seeing Andy every day on set. And actually on this movie, my father was passing away. And I got the call while we were at a uh, John Wayne airport, I believe. And they sent me home. They flew me home. They paid for it. 
And when I came back two weeks later after saying goodbye to my father, I got my job back for the last week. Like they made sure that I got to finish the movie with them. And I'll like my mom and I will always be thankful for their kindness, but also the atmosphere they created was something I wanted to go back to and finish and say goodbye to everyone I had spent several months with. Well, after a story like that, Andy, I'm going to expect you to tell us that actually behind the scenes, Cameron was really awful to work with. Like He was just a complete <laughs> terror to everyone away from the movie set. I, I was actually going to jump in and make some really horrible joke about what a horrible human being he is, but um, I, I cannot lie. Uh, he's, uh, he's the best. Um, that's why I was with him for 18 years. And I used to always tell people that, you know, Cameron will get rid of me when he shakes me off his coattails. And uh, it was always a joy to show up to his set every day because you, he infused such passion and joy into every one of his projects and still does to this day. And it, it flows from the top. I mean, we've all been on sets that are miserable to be around where you can tell you walk onto the set, you walk on, you know, behind the scenes and you just, it's palpable. It's in the air where you know it's going to be a miserable day and whatever you do to try and make it a better day, it just feels like you're, you're bumping up against this dark brick wall. And that was never the case on Cameron's movies. We, you know, the best thing about working for him as long as I did was that if we ever, and it happens every once in a while, but if you ever get a bad apple or an asshole who works on a movie, we don't work with him again. It's just as simple as that. He just, Cameron works too hard and spends too, I mean, you know, literally for him, because he's a writer, director and producer, he'll spend two years plus on a single project. So for, for people to come in and feel that vibe that he creates, that was a really important thing for him. And, and I always lauded him for that because it's, his crew always wanted to lay down and die for him and do their best work. And I thought he more than anyone that I've ever worked with does such an uh, exceptional job of creating that atmosphere for, for people to do their best creative work. And that was, uh, that was, you know, that was working for Cameron in a nutshell. You know, now it's just like piling on the guy uh, at this point, but uh, I also similarly had a good experience with Cameron and in context, I'm only there for about two weeks. I've been hired specifically to manage the 200 plus background, which means I'm spending all of my extra time with those folks off a stage, off the set. I'm several levels removed from working with the director. You know, everything that he wants comes down through the other ADs, lets me know. And But there was a day when he pulled me aside. He knew my name. I said skid and he actually thanked me for the work I was doing with the background, uh, that he thought I was treating them well. And that he thought that was an important part of how things worked on his set. So I was really, uh, that doesn't happen a lot. Even with the other good directors I've worked with, I think it's rare that a director takes that effort to get to know all levels of his crew like that. So similar experience to you guys overall. Yeah, one of the um, other things about the production that was pretty amazing is we, uh, well, I mean, just to go, to go back to um, Cameron for a minute, he, you know, he was one of the few directors and I don't know if I've even actually worked with another director who made us feel like it was our movie. And that's, that's a, the important thing is, you know, so many times you work on these shows and it's clear who's, who's the, whose movie it is, you know, <laughs> and they don't, and they make it a point to be like, this is my movie and it's going to be this and that. And, you know, um, while we all know that it's a movie written, produced and directed by Cameron Crowe, he made everybody feel like it was, it was our movie. And that, that's, that's a, an important thing to, I think, to, to be said, especially for those lucky enough to, 
get to work with him in the future or, or anyone that has worked with him in the past. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's a rare thing. And, um, I think JJ Abrams might've been the only other one that made me feel that way when I worked with him about just the inclusion, you know, we used to play this game with Cameron of predicting the weekly box office. We'd have a group of people around the monitor and everyone would be like, okay, there's a new movie coming out this weekend. And you'd pick the top five. And then he would like kind of on the weekend, email everybody what the, this is like before like massive, like, you know, you can, you, there's like alerts about what movie was number one on the weekend and stuff like that. But he, you know, he'd get the, the trades and know, and know what was number one and, and stuff. And it was just a game we played and he sent me a gift at the end of the movie. It was a picture of myself on the, on the freeway. I think it was the 85, right? What was that one they kept talking about on the show? He signed it, you know, thank you for your soulful, um, I actually it's hanging in my hallway. I'll go read it right now. But one of the things he said was like, uh, you know, and your soulful movie, or uh, he's, you know, your amazing uh, movie picks and stuff like that. So it's just, you know, and I don't I know he didn't send that to a lot of people because uh, it was one of those. I'm like, Oh, did you get your picture from Cameron when you run through? They're like, uh, no. And I'm like, Oh, so I know that like only a few <laughs> of us actually got that. And that's kind of like a, a, an awesome thing, you know? Don't feel but, too special. Everybody got one of those. Uh, I was, so. I'm sure they ultimately did. At the time, it made me feel right. You know, I felt I felt like I was, you know, part of the girl, you know, select group there. Once Cameron heard that you were asking around about it, he was like, "Oh shit, I got to send them to everybody else now." Too. I'm now, sure Frank is going to cause trouble for me on the next film if I. Don't I'm sure. I'm sure someone probably it. came to him and said, "Oh, Frank told us about this great picture," and he's like, "Uh, yeah, yours is on the way." <laughs> you know the uh, the one thing that I got very used to working for Cameron was in between projects, we would constantly get phone calls from crew saying, when is your boss going to make another movie? I'm so tired of working for these assholes. Please get another movie up and running now. So that, that was, that was always fun. And, and, and he did, he did his level best to, to create that familial atmosphere for sure. And, and he always felt like that, you know, I mean, look, he, he knows how hard people work. He knows how long they're away from their families and, you know, their kids. And I mean, everybody's got their own personal things going on and he really appreciates how hard people work for him. So he's, you know, that's, that's, that's one of the best things about him for sure. Aside from his ridiculous talent. Well, let's talk about how the atmosphere he created and the inclusiveness extended to the cast. Uh, as I mentioned in the beginning, that, scenes we were doing with the ballroom i think most if not all of the cast was was present for those there were a lot of folks there and there were folks there that i had met on other projects but were similarly in that atmosphere saying hey nice to see you again i just for example i had worked with judy greer on arrested development back in the day uh she pulled me aside said hello i had worked with loud and rainwhite on uh big fish um, and he had remembered me as well. And again, I'm not working a lot with the cast. I'm in and out with those background and those hard scenes, but it seems to me that they also absorbed sort of Cameron's lessons about how the set should be run. Um, you, you know, on a lot of times on shows, uh, cast, um, in between setups, like when we're moving camera angles or just lighting or whatever, a lot of them retreat back to their trailers. It's a, as ADs, it's a common nuisance because you want to try to keep everybody there. And, and uh, you know, cause you're always just about momentum and moving forward and getting the day made and stuff like that. Elizabeth town was definitely one of those rare occasions where in between setups, the cast all hung around and they stayed close and they stayed on set cause they wanted to be there because the atmosphere was so great. And um, 
I remember like Judy Greer, it's funny to mention her. We loved Judy on Elizabethtown and I used to call her the closer because for some reason she was always the last one we filmed. Uh, there was a lot of days when Judy would come in on Elizabethtown and she'd be like the last, the last scene would be with Judy. So we'd be like, let's bring in the closer and she would laugh. Um, because, and she would always spot on. She was always so good that like she was just nailing her takes left and right. So we knew that when Judy was coming in, we were going to, you know, she was going to uh, you know, hit the home run. I did this film in Pittsburgh years later Clark Cradle, who ran base camp on Elizabethtown, was with me on this other job, and we were both ADs now. And um, I, we were very excited about Judy coming out to Pittsburgh to do this thing. And I was like, oh, I wonder if she remembers me. He goes, oh, she'll remember you. She'll remember you. When she pulled up into the parking lot in Pittsburgh, like I could see we had her, you know, the car service was bringing her, and I could see kind of her eyes like kind of light up. And she's looking, and she had her face up against the window like a puppy dog. And then as soon as it stopped in front of her, because I was waiting to greet her, she hopped out and literally like jumped in my arms and like held on to me and like was like, Oh my God, it's so good to see you. And we talked about obviously Elizabethtown for months after that, but it was funny because then she went into hair and makeup and I called Clark on the radio. I said, Hey Clark. And he's like, yeah, what's up? I go, yeah, she remembered me. And it was like, <laughs> you know, so it was just one of those kind of fun experiences. Did she also remember Clark or she just called him Frank? So she, yeah, she, I think she just <laughs> called him Frank. No, she definitely remembered. She definitely remembered Clark and, and we talked a lot about it. And that was like, you know, anyone that I've ever, you know, any crew member I've run into since like Don Sufle, I think is his last name. He was our sound, our boom operator. Um, I worked with him many times after Elizabethtown and, and we always just start talking about Elizabethtown. It's just like anybody that I've ever worked with after, you know, run into crew members after that, we, we just tend to, to always talk about it because it was, like I said, it, you know, it was just one of those fun experiences and we did a lot of hard things. I mean, there's some big setups. Like I think one of the first things we did in Kentucky was there's the, um, after Orlando Broom's father passes away and he comes back to town, back to Elizabethtown, if you will. Um, he's kind of driving into the this the small town and we had like hundreds and hundreds of extras down this main street in lexington and they're just kind of like greeting him if you will as he's like arriving and, and that was we rehearsed it on a weekend and um we shot it you know with with insert cars and in multiple different camera rigs and stuff and so it was just days just being out there on the street in kentucky um shooting this like you know big crowd scenes and and i think that was actually i think that was our first week of filming i think it was actually one of the first things that we did um and to like to where you were with us with the fair you know hundreds and hundreds of people doing those big scenes and then um we actually like we dealt with massive elements when we were in kentucky i remember we just finished filming in elizabethtown the town square and like this deluge of of a storm came and was just pounding us and then we had a company move up to like the ohio river so we were like, we shot with all these people and then the crew got in their vehicles and moved up and I was staying back signing out the extras because we had hundreds of extras and we get this call. It was from Sarah Baker, who's one of our PAs and Ian Callip, another one of our PAs. And they're like, we just heard word that there's a tornado coming. You guys got to like get cover. And I'm like, look outside and there's like the funnel cloud. I go, I'm staring at the tornado, <laughs> you know? And, you know, and we ran, we all like ran into the this school that we were signing the background in, and we and you know I had this is my I'm from California I got earthquakes so that's about it, and so everyone's like hiding in the hallway up against the wall, and it's so loud and the wind's blowing, and I was like I can't believe this is happening, and then like just like that it's over with, and I remember once it's done like we sign everybody out, and I was like I just survived a tornado this is insane, and I got in the car and drove like 60 miles to meet up with the crew 
in in uh, over by the Ohio River. And I just remember everybody was so worried about us. Like they, I don't even know if they were filming. They just wanted to make sure we got to everybody okay because they knew what had just happened down in the town. It was it was pretty. Uh, it was one of my uh, <laughs> bigger stories I always tell from the from the show. Do do background artists get a tornado bump? Is that a is that something you can put on their voucher that they get a bunch of money for that? We we might have. I think it was hazard pay. To be quite honest with you, <laughs> you know, I want to talk some more about the large scenes uh, that you guys filmed. Um, but before we move on, Alexis, Andy, other cast stories you guys want to tell? Actually, Don Lee was he an executive producer? Yeah. Years later, he was on a show, and he asked another. This is about how great these people we worked with were, he asked another PA, Christian Labuarta, if I was okay with my yeah. father, like two years later, and he remembered me and what I'd gone through. And he was like, is she okay? How's her father? How's her mother? And I just remember, I've never met another EP that remembered the additional PA's father was ill. And I thought that was amazing. Oh, also, I was on, I think, bewitched was after that and i walked onto set and there was it was the all the trucks were there and i think it was either the grip or the electric team from elizabethtown was standing by their truck and i'm walking towards the trucks and all of a sudden six or seven guys start running towards me and i'm kind of like what's going on and i all of a sudden realize i recognize all of them from the show from elizabethtown and they hug me and they're like, oh, it's been so long since I've seen you. How are you doing? And it was just nice to be, see these people in front of me. It reminded me how great that show was compared to like Frankie was saying so many other shows. This one really was like the top. I think we get that a lot in the podcast, mostly because the shows people are willing to come on and talk about are generally the ones where they had a good time. So that's definitely, definitely true for this. You know, I had one loud and rain white story that's actually a little embarrassing for me. He saw me once on the street, um, down on the Third Street Promenade, I think, in Santa Monica. It used to be an AMC theater there. I don't know if it's still there anymore or not. But uh, on a Sunday or something, I'd gone to the movies. And he was just out. And he actually stopped me. And I think it was after Big Fish, but before Elizabethtown. But I didn't recognize him on the street. Like, it was just out of context. It was just some guy stopping me. And, uh, uh, and I could not pull his name up to, to my huge embarrassment. We talked for five or six minutes and then uh and then went on but uh yeah that was awkward but that'll happen that's LA for you that's great I love that the roles were reversed on recognizing the person usually it's the it's the other way around with the celebrity not knowing who the hell you are and being like yeah hey buddy great to see you again <laughs> <laughs> my favorite story from from the Kentucky aspect of of shooting was day one we were at a cemetery outside Lexington and Cameron plays music on the set a lot, which I think helps a lot in a little bit of that camaraderie and that family atmosphere and stuff. Cause music is definitely as, as they say, the universal language and he has such ridiculously great taste in music anyway, but he'll play stuff that people don't, recognize or don't know who it is and like i it was i think it was ivan corona who was playing music on set and i would play music on set sometimes as well and i think at that at that time i was i was spinning tunes uh it was our first i think it was our first movie with uh the jeff wexler 
laptop contraption that was literally this cart that had a big speaker in front and then it had the laptop attached to it. So we were spinning tunes off of iTunes. And Cameron had me play Don't Be Shy, which is uh, an amazing song from, a matter of fact, I think it's the opening track to uh, opening music cue in Harold and Maude. And Harold Motto obviously has, you know, all those great funeral scenes. And we were shooting a funeral scene, so it was incredibly appropriate. So we, we finished the scene, we finished the setup. And Jeff Wexler, our sound guy, who, who had been working with Cameron since, boy, since Jerry Maguire, and I think worked with him through roadies, actually, before he retired. He, in fact, I think he came out of retirement for the last couple of things that Cameron did. Um, Jeff came up to him and said, I, the hair on the back of my neck stood up when you played Don't Be Shy. My first job was as a PA in the art department on Harold and Maude. <laughs> and we're like, what? So instantly, and it was like one of our favorite films. So we're, we're like bothering him for stories. And his dad, Haskell Wexler, the, the famed cinematographer, was supposed to be the cinematographer. And back then there were these odd like union rules and for some reason he couldn't because of the union work on it so they ended up getting john alonzo to shoot it who did an incredible job um haskell said listen hal to hal ashby do me a favor give my kid a job get him out of the house like i gotta do something with this kid so hal gave him a job as a pa on harold and Maude, and that started uh jeff wexler's career in hollywood and uh and working in film and television and He's, you know, he's one of the great sound guys of all time. But to hear him tell stories of being on the set with Hal was just amazing. It was so cool. And that ended up actually starting uh, the ball rolling. When we got back to Los Angeles, we were all talking that day. And we were just like, boy, why did there never, why was there never a soundtrack for that movie? It's got all that amazing Cat Stevens music and nobody ever put out a soundtrack. And a year earlier, I had helped start a vinyl only uh, record label through Cameron's imprint. So when I got back to LA, I started looking into it and we were working at Paramount at the time and Harold and Maude was a Paramount picture. So we got approval from Paramount and from Universal Music who controlled the, the Cat Stevens music at the time, reached out to Cat's people, got everybody's agreement and we put out the first official Harold and Maude soundtrack based on that one day on Elizabethtown, which was a blast. That's awesome. You just don't need to take a moment to take all that in there, Andy. Sorry, you've left us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was cool. I, we spent, I literally spent the next three years. It didn't come out until 2007. And I spent the next three years tracking down every living person who worked on that movie. And we interviewed 30 plus people and then took interviews from the people who had passed. Um, we, had, we even tracked down Vivian Pickles, who plays Harold, Harold's mom uh, in England, and interviewed her, and Cameron interviewed Kat, and Robert Evans, and Peter Bart, who were the executives at Paramount at the time, and we, we put together an oral history of the making of the music in the movie. And, uh, and you know, in addition to how much fun Elizabethtown was to work on, it, it spawned the the next three years of my life working on that soundtrack which was an absolute blast so almost famous will always be my favorite movie uh working with cameron just because it was my first and it was such a special project and it was it was a small movie that i think really touches people in a, a, a really particular way but uh, elizabethtown will you know it's close second for sure all of them are close seconds, but E-Town had a really, has a really warm, warm spot in my heart for, for that reason. 
I feel like the movie was like a musical awakening for me too, which is interesting, especially like all that was played on set. I was definitely more of like a heavy metal kind of guy growing up. I was like Metallica or nothing. I didn't listen to anything else. Even at that, <laughs> at that point of my, I was like 24 at the time, but um, like I'd never heard of my morning jacket, you know, and then these guys, they started playing and I don't know why I didn't listen to them. And, and then um, they were, they performed in the movie towards the end there. They did the free bird sequence and, and I kept going, man, these guys are awesome. And I hated Pearl Jam up until this movie. Like I couldn't get, I was not a grunge guy by any means. And I know Cameron did singles and all that stuff, but and I was just like, this is nothing, not this music, music just did not connect to me, but sitting there on set, you know, playing the Pearl Jam that he did, you know, in the My Morning Jacket, and I think Rilo Kelly and all these different kind of uh, people that he would play during different scenes. And I would, uh, it was funny, like, um, Ivan was very protective of the database. Like, I, he would, like, wouldn't let anyone touch it, but I would always, like, look over his shoulder because I'd be like, what was that song? And I'd make notes in, like, a little notebook because I, I was like, well, who was that? And he'd look at me like I was an idiot. Like I'd never <laughs> heard of these people before. And I was like, no, no, just like, seriously. And he goes, oh, that was, you know, so-and-so. And I, and I would just go out and start getting more and more music. And, I, and I'm like, not even bullshitting. Like I literally had like a musical awakening on that movie. Because I never actually experienced it. Like music in movies is always something that happens after all of us are there. You know, you don't tend to be anywhere or any part of like the picking out of songs for anything and not that these songs were played in the in the film per se but there was so much you know like lyricalness to all the scenes that he was doing that like to put the like I, I remember looking at the database that, that Cameron had done and it was like for each scene he had picked out specific songs like Andy was saying for the funeral you know to to um, have the songs from Harold and Maude stuff like that so like he was very prepared in terms in terms of you know each scene what he wanted to play to get people in the mood, to get the actors in the mood. And so I was like, and I've never seen anyone else ever do anything like that. They'd just be copying him at that point. Being the one who would spin tunes, like literally on Jerry Maguire and Almost Famous, we would have a boom box on the side of the stage where we were filming and we would literally pop in CDs and play stuff and, you know, cue them up. It got so much easier and so much more precise once we had a laptop and could do it from, from there, from iTunes. But before then it was literally like we were, we were swapping out CDs on a boombox, and I would walk around with two huge bags of like 60 CDs each. And I would try and get an idea from Cameron what we would need for that shooting day. But we'd always have our, our stash back in his trailer that we would grab from and I would have like 120 CDs and then would always get more. So by the end of the day, I would have to collect all this stuff and, and haul it back to his trailer for the next day's filming. And, and we'd also have to, we would keep a list of what we played during the day and I would email that. There would be like an email list that would grow during shooting where people would be like, what's that song? What, what did you just play? What was that? And I would say, you know what? I'll, <clears throat> I'll email you the day's list at the, at the end of the day. So that was part of my job. At the end of the day, I would put, you know, when, when I was wrapping up, I would put together the list of what we played during the day. And there would be an email list that I would have to send it out to so people would know what, what that music was. It's something that Frank had said that people copy, like the people that do it now are copying Cameron. And I'm one of those people that the last time I did a commercial, I thought about it. I was like, I remember Cameron doing that. And I had my producer get someone to always play music during the commercial to get not just the, the actors in it, but I wanted my crew to be happy. And a lot of the things I do on set now 
I know I learned from being on Elizabethtown and seeing how not just Cameron, but how everyone treated each other. And it is always for me, I'm trying to somehow reach what that experience was for other people. Let's talk a little more about Cameron casting musicians as actors. Because Frank, I think you made a reference to the band. I'm not sure that everyone who sees the movie will necessarily recognize all the folks that are in it. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, um, one of, like Orlando Bloom's cousin, I think, was played by, I'm blanking on the actor's name. He was a great guy. Something Schneider, I, Paul Schneider, right? I believe his name was. Yep. Um, he's in a band in the movie, and the band is actually played by, you know, the, the band My Morning Jacket. And um, they do a big thing at the end of the movie where free birds happening, and they'll bur- burst into flames, and the sprinklers go off, and they're just going crazy during the rain and stuff like that. And uh, Loudon Rainwright is a musician in his own in his own right for sure, and I'm sure there's like a million others that I don't even remember were in the were in the movie. Uh, Andy Griffin. probably, yeah, Pat, that's right, Patty Griffin, and um, uh, there was one other one I'm blanking on. I'll I'll, I'll have to like IMDb real quick. There's a, there was a guy named Travis Howard who played the um, the guy who uh, was kind of running the winch for the bird, and he's yes, right. a Nashville songwriter as well. That reminds me of. Elizabethtown will always be the greatest rap party that we that I yeah. think we ever had because it was literally a concert. We rented out the El Ray for the night, and a skid. Were you there? I was. I don't believe I was there. I'm Did not you not sure get I... the invite, man? I, you know that was, that was my bad. I'm, so sorry. <laughs> I'm still waiting for my picture from Cameron Crow. <laughs> <laughs> we uh, we literally rented out the El Ray and put on a concert. So Travis Howard came out and played three songs. Patty Griffin played a set. Uh, everybody played like 20 to 30 minutes. Susan Sarandon's husband, Tim Robbins, his band, yeah. Gob Roberts, came out and played. Loudon didn't show up to the party until like 1130, and he closed the night. But Ruckus, the, the fictional band, came out and played one or two songs. And then My Morning Jacket played like a half an hour set. And then Loudon closed it. And Nancy Wilson played, Cameron's wife at the time. Uh, she played three or four songs. It was mind-blowing. It was like, you, you know, you would have paid a hundred bucks for a ticket to that show. And here we were kind of celebrating the finish of the movie and getting to see all these people that we saw act do their day job and they were kind enough to do that for us and it was it was ridiculous it was so great yeah that i i am one of those few people that can't stand rap parties and i try not to go if i don't if i don't have to and there's many that i've missed it's harder now that i'm a production manager you kind of kind of <laughs> have to go you know because i'm the one kind of approving everything but uh that was definitely hands down my favorite rap party and and i remember you know a lot of the rap parties people are just in groups talking it was more of like an arena, you know, of people just sitting there watching this concert go on. And, and I, and we were, I remember commenting when I was there, when I was there with my friends, Christian and other people from the show and I'm going, we're at a concert right now. I mean, this is like the coolest thing ever. And I loved it because I hate rap parties. So I didn't feel like I was an actual rap party. I felt like I was just going to see live music, you know? <laughs> yeah. I remember uh, when they were playing Freebird at the end, uh, the band was, we were all like holding each other. Like there was like six or seven of us holding each other and swaying and dancing. And I, I, I remember crying because I knew it was over. And I know I wasn't the only person who had a couple tears in their eyes. And Alexis, you're referencing the rap party as well. Not yes, I am. when they were playing Freebird during the big ballroom scene and the bird caught fire because you probably had a more involved job 
we all did at that point. Was that probably the largest, most complicated shooting on the on this film? The big like reception, for lack of a better word, I guess it was the big you know funeral reset you know at the end inside the ballroom with the the ruckus playing and the bird catching fire. Just the logistics of that because we had quite a lot of you know extras there and stunt players, and then you know when you start involving like special effects, you got a band playing on the on the stage. You got 100, 200 people in this in the in the ballroom. You got a bird on a winch flying above the crowd that bursts into flames, and then sprinklers going on and people running around. It it was like it was a crazy. And the whole time it was like everyone's having a blast, and it was it was a lot of fun. But uh, I think that was probably, I mean, at least from my standpoint, the hardest thing that we did. That was even harder than traveling to six states, and um, just the coordination of that is always like a different. And it's nerve wracking because you don't want anyone to get hurt and and uh, just, you know, to the planning that goes involved in that and just making sure everybody's where they need to be. Talking about the, the ballroom sequence, that's one of those things that's almost like a movie within a movie. I, I feel like Frank and, you know, or, uh, you know, Alexis, you can back me up on this. Uh, and actually, you, Skid, you as well. I think that was, I feel like that was eight days of shooting, something like that. I mean, it was a long time. Yeah. I, think, I think it was two full weeks. I, it might have been eight days, over two weeks. Right. Like, it yeah, might have yeah. been 10 days total. But yeah, that's, uh, that was a long sequence. But like, that's one of those things when, you, when you're about to start it and there's so much planning that goes into it and you have everything broken down, the little pieces that you're going to get here and there and how you're going to shoot it. And it's just daunting. It's overwhelming when you look at it from the big picture. You're like, how the hell are we going to do this? And then you get into the minutia and everybody does their job and, and you start it and, you, and you're working your way through it and you're thinking after day four, is this scene ever going to end? How many times do I have to listen to Freebird? <laughs> but it ends up being one of the more memorable, um, you know, a couple of weeks of that movie just because of uh, the chaos that was going on and the professionalism that everybody showed and the enthusiasm on day eight or 10 or however many days it was that everybody was showing for the work to, you know, do their best every day. And that was that that's, those are the times when you, when you're really appreciative of a great crew because it can be a slog when you get into those scenes that never end. And, uh, and that was one of them. That was, that was a long time. That was, like I said, that was a movie within a movie and it. And it felt, um, not that I've ever given birth, but when you're finished with, you know, you kind of feel like you have that little moment of, Oh man, that was awful, but I'm so glad it's over with and, and that we pulled it off. You know, by the yeah. way, I just want to say as an aside, I love Judy Greer. She is, yeah. she's like, I, I, I wish that she was in every one of Cameron's movies cause she was so great. And like you said, I love that you called her the closer. That's awesome. <laughs> Every once in a while, and I hope I'm not speaking out of school, but Cameron will get choked up by what an actor will do with something that he's written. And Judy was the one who did that for him on Elizabethtown. It was the, her side of the phone call where she calls uh, Orlando to tell him that his dad passed away, that their dad passed away. And that scene really got to Cameron because, you know, like most of Cameron's stuff, it's fused with his personal life. So I'm sure there was a lot of stuff going on in his head as, as we were filming that stuff, which I can't even imagine how difficult that is. But he'll, he'll every once in a while, he'll get, he'll get choked up or he'll get really emotional and affected by what an actor does. And, and Judy was the one on E-Town. She was she was a stud and a huge music fan and brought her dog to set. And she just, 
she's one of those people who's just so wonderful to be around that you just want to, you're instantly gravitated toward. Speaking of um, Cameron's directing, it does bring me um, something that I recall that maybe you guys have more insight into is that there were some scenes that I witnessed where Cameron would direct the actors in a manner that I, I don't know how to describe it exactly, but he would small tweaks, like they just roll camera. I don't remember if we were shooting on video or film at the time. It might've been filming just until yeah. the role ran out. He would say, now do it happy. Now do it sad. Now do it thinking this, now do it. Th-. Like he would just sort of quick, quick, quick asking for different reactions and such. And was that a typical event? Was it just with certain actors? You guys obviously saw more of it than I did. No, no, I was going to say, I can't speak for obviously his other movies. I only did Elizabethtown, but that was definitely a, a common thing. On, on this show, like it, when he would roll a, on close coverage on an actor, we, it, was, it was film. So it would, he would, you basically knew you were going to have to sit tight because he was going to run the whole mag on that person. And it was, it was great to watch because he did those small tweaks. And then he would like kind of blast the radio in between or the, like the, 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 the music. Like if they would pause, he'd like flip it on real quick and then flip it off and do all these different things to get their, um, you know, different reactions and emotions out of them and stuff. Yeah. It's, it's nothing that I ever had a specific conversation with him about, but I always felt like because he was a writer director that he would have maybe even specific line readings in his head as he was writing something and would chase that sometimes on set. And I think there are times that he was pleasantly surprised by performances by actors and maybe sometimes that he wasn't so pleasantly surprised. Uh, and and would would definitely roll entire mags, uh, especially on close-ups, to to get little nuances that he was looking for. He loves all parts of the process of of movie making, but editing is one of his favorites because that's when the movie really starts to come together. You know, basically during production, you're collecting the pieces that you're going to have to play with in the editing room. So he always wanted to make sure he had plenty of choices. When once he got in the editing room, the stuff for he and the editor to play with, and I think that's a lot of why he he would do that, and he does that on all of his films. You know, some actors like it more than others. I think most actors like it though because they like his crew really want to do great work for him, and they like the way he works with them, and I think they 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 like doing different versions of things. And it wasn't like anything. Like one was happy, one was sad, one was, you know, I mean, one was angry. It was all subtle little colors and it was always a blast to watch him converse with actors. And because he, the the one thing that I think is, is kind of verboten in film is for directors to give actors line readings. It's just not the way you want to work unless you just want to do one or two takes on every scene and be done with it and say, here's how I want you to say it. He, he always wanted to, to get the actors deeply involved in the performance and deeply involved in the, in the filmmaking. And so, um, but there would be times when he would definitely want a, a specific thing, but to, to watch him work with an actor and try and make subtle changes in their performance with them was always a blast to watch. We had some super skilled actors that that were that were really great at that. Tom Cruise was one who was just, you know, he worked with him both on Jerry and Vanilla Sky, and Cruise would love to jam with Cameron. And Frank, you went on to do War of the Worlds right after, yeah. yeah? 
Yeah. And people always ask, because that was the movie where, you know, things kind of went, I think the Oprah appearance happened then, and there yeah. was some other stuff, and people were like, you work with Tom Cruise, he must be crazy, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no. <laughs> like, Tom was like the hardest working guy on every set that he was on. He was first there, last to leave, would show up, and he was the guy who was like, hey, man, just tell me what you want me to do, and, and let's jam on this, and let's... He was always so energetic. He knew the crew's name. He cared for the crew. He busted his ass for the director. Uh, and it was, a, a, you know, he, more than anybody else, he's a great producer. I, at least that would be my understanding. He was on Vanilla Sky in that he wants to help the director in any and every way he can make the best film possible. But Tom Cruise was a producer on Elizabeth Town as well. In fact, I he remember. He was, exactly. That's I right. Remember, I forgot about that. He I remember seeing him on set one day. Um, one of those days, the big ballroom, he was on set. That's um, right. I don't remember what the occasion was, but. Uh, no, I was going to say, because I had prior to Elizabeth Town, I had done Minority Report with Tom. And oh, nice. He was like, in a, I was in awe of him. You know, that was definitely, you know, it, it, just his presence and his dedication and his, um, you know, the way he was and treated everybody. And then. I saw him then on Elizabeth town. He came twice. He right. came on his motorcycle one day and I remember greeting him as he was coming and he immediately like remembered me. And then the uh, same thing, like the, the next movie being war of the worlds. And he was like, joking with me he goes, you're following me around on everything. And uh, <laughs> you know, he was a great guy. And, and um, I, I, I would have to, to be in like the Cameron Crowe, Tom Cruise kind of like, you know, circle would have been pretty amazing to watch. Yeah, Andy, I'm glad you clarified on that because I had said, yeah, happy, sad in sort of broad terms. But no, in retrospect, it was much more subtle and obviously based on a working relationship with those actors that allowed him to get uh, to have that sort of back and forth. Absolutely. Yeah. And no, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to say you're wrong, but no, no, when, you know. no, no, no. When you're, when I'm wrong, <laughs> it's best to say, otherwise I get it from the lawyer, the, the, somebody else. So let's, let's correct it on the record uh, right here. So does anybody, anybody have any stories that don't involve Cameron Crowe? Cause I'm a little yeah. sick, I think at this point, <laughs> Aren't we all? Loved, him when, loved him when we started this podcast, right. but man, he's too nice. I remember this was during the New York Boston 2004 uh, series, wasn't it, Frank? Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I remember always, ever, someone was always checking, "Hey, it's this score," and I just remember the joy of being on set. And also, I'm a Boston fan. I was one of two on the set. I think everyone else were New York fans, and I just remember feeling so energized by people loving baseball and being on set and the joy. And I think Tom came to set once and one of the PAs had a Boston hat on and he kind of gave her a little, you know, ha ha ha, you guys must be used to pain. And every time he, uh, that one day he saw me with my hat on and kind of pointed at me and I was like, Oh gosh. And um, I just remember that being a lot of fun and being a big memory in my mind of being on set and, having both kind of come together yeah we were filming down at the nickin building which i think is down like i want to say not irvine but south somewhere on the um it's like a metal or like a a, a magnet like building or something like that right it was where the uh, the shoe it was it was what we were using uh, for the shoe the shoe company that he works at uh, the, with alec baldwin uh, and jessica beale we, I remember the, the, the what you're talking about exactly because the Yankees were playing the, the, the Red Sox and it was like the Yankees were up by like three games and it was the year that the, you know, the, 
I remember being down there and was trying in like that. We all were, we ever like the crew was together watching the games at night, and then the Red Sox came back. Ultimately, ended up winning the World Series that year against the Cardinals. Against the Cardinals, but I remember when we were filming, we had all those people down there, and the, the production actually put the extras up down there. We had about 150, which is a rare thing too. The whole crew got put up down there, and it's not like it was ultimately that far, but I think it was a good, uh, maybe. 40-minute drive from L.A., maybe even not that long. You know, with traffic in this town, it could be hours. So we, we it was funny because it was one of the first things we did when we came back from being on location and filming in L.A., and then we went on location in L.A. kind of because we were still back in, like, hotels and stuff. And so everyone would get together after the after shooting, and we'd watch the, the, the World Series and stuff. But it started – I don't know how it happened, but when the Yankees lost, I'm a big Yankees fan, I got mad. And it started this pencil war. And we do this thing where we get number two pencils on set. And I think someone was ribbing me about the Yankees losing. And I whacked them with a number two pencil. And it became this game that we played in the hallways of the Nicken building while they were filming. And everyone just, production bought all these pencils. I mean, literally don't know how this happened. But it just it's just, we had all these number two pencils, like those yellow number twos, not sharpened. And it became a thing that the whole crew had, would have them on there. And we'd come up behind someone and just whack them in the back of the leg. I mean, today there'd be lawsuits left and right. <laughs> it was like, that was like the game that somehow got started down there. And like, and it would just be like, we'd, we'd be doing takes and, and you know, ever be quiet. And then you'd just come up and whack someone in the, in the, in the shin or something like that. And it was like crew wide. There was about 80 people playing. this game. <laughs> And I, I literally remember one time standing there and I, and I, I no bullshit. Like Cameron came up and just nailed me in the back of the leg and I turned around and it was him. And I was like, Bitch. <laughs> How did he get involved in this? I'm, I'm glad you brought up, brought up Alec Baldwin because um, he was one of those guys that you're a little, always a little nervous because you hear horror stories sometimes that he's difficult to work with or he's kind of gruff on set or he yells and all this stuff. He had such an interesting thing that he would do. And I, I don't know if it was, uh, certainly it was part of his process, but I think it was also to clear his throat before every take, but he would almost scream before every take or at least before every setup uh, and just make sure there, you know, he didn't like start talking and all of a sudden had a frog in his throat. So he would do this, Aah! but he was so ridiculously professional and funny and great. And we ended up working with him again on Aloha with Bill Murray, who was another one of those guys that you're like, Oh, you know, you don't know which bill you're going to get. I mean, and they've been working forever and were so professional and so great and just did nothing but bring up, the set every time that they were they were on set one one quick story with baldwin thumb cameron was looking to get a reaction out of orlando's close-up so he had alec do his off camera and tell the filthiest most disgusting joke uh, frank were you there on set yeah, that day I remember, yeah. it was at, it was i think it was at the it wasn't at the nicken building but it was in that area it was like in yeah. a university building it was this monstrous it was supposed to be alec baldwin's office and it's this huge like 30 foot you know 30 foot ceiling room and so <laughs> alec tells this filthy joke and i don't remember the specifics of it otherwise probably, I would, probably just as well yeah i would i would tell it otherwise <laughs> we are we but, are marked for adult content <laughs> lean into it but orlando's face when he tells this joke is just priceless it's so great like you can see him almost break character because he's just so revolted and disgusted by what's coming out of Baldwin's <laughs> mouth off camera but he loved doing that too like he's he's really I think, especially now, coming to his own as an actor's actor, he's just one of those guys who 
loves the craft and, you know, obviously went through his difficulties. One of the things that he did on Aloha, we had this scene where literally there was no dialogue. It was just, a, he drives up to a building, gets out, walks through this little procession and shakes people's hands and then enters the building. After the first take, he looks over at the, at the script supervisor and said, how long was that? She says, 37 seconds. He goes, I can do it quicker. I can do it quicker. So he goes back and does it again. How about that one? 34 seconds. I, I can still do it quicker. And he turned to somebody and said, you learn very quickly when you're not number one on the call sheet anymore. You do it as fast as you can. That way they have less to cut. <laughs> and I was like, what a great thing for a guy who like literally was a leading man for so long and is now a ridiculously great character actor to say. I was like, it's just so cool and very him to say. Well, it's very easy to see how talking about Elizabeth Town and the connections made there lead in all these stories about other films just because the connections between what Cameron takes movie to movie and crews working together to all of your careers. All of you had a tremendous time here and, and, and clearly this movie had a big influence on you. Well, that was the best thing about working for Cameron is that we kept collecting great people like three of you here uh, who we're, we're talking with. It was a joy to work on a set. And like I said, if we, we would get assholes every once in a while and they just wouldn't come back for the next one. And it was, it was so much fun to work on his sets knowing that and knowing that he surrounded himself with people who loved film, loved music, loved what they do, and brought that kind of passion to every day on the set. It was great. Andy, I didn't work on the next one. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah. none of us did. But I, but I said earlier about the assholes not coming back. Oh, <laughs> I can't. I was just going to say, none of us did the next one. What the hell is that supposed to mean? <laughs> We're all yeah. busy. You got the call, I swear. <laughs> I'm still, still waiting for my picture. Me too. Uh, <laughs> now, the only way that we did that is because Neil Preston took your photographs at some point on set. So if you didn't get one, that probably meant that we couldn't find a photo of you on set. But Neil, Neil did a really good job of, of covering just about everybody. He's another character. I don't know if you got the chance to interact much with him, but Neil, you know, there were, there were a lot of guys who had done a number of movies with Cameron, and Neil is Cameron's closest friend and has been since the early 70s. They, would, they went on the road with The Who and Led Zeppelin and, and stuff back in the day. And so Neil, you know, to have him shoot, uh, be the still photographer for his movies was a blast. And he was one of the, you know, and still is one of the true characters. I love Neil. I mean, I want to talk about Orlando because we haven't really touched on him or Kirsten. Because I remember Orlando, he had just kind of, it was like the, his rise. He had just come off the Lord of the Rings films. And um, I think he had just come back from shooting um, the Ridley Scott movie, uh, Kingdom of Heaven. So it was, I think it was interesting to be around him because, you know, we would go to these places. He had a security guard that was um, assigned to him. Um, his name was Guy. We called him Guy. My name is Guy. Um, he was an interesting character. I, will, I won't tell you stories about him because they probably shouldn't be aired. Um, but he, uh, Orlando was interesting because everywhere we went, it was like he was mobbed. He was mobbed by crowds and crowds of people. And, especially when we were in Beaver, Arkansas, like population 90, uh, that, that whole town like kind of descended on him. I don't even know like who was paying guy, but the, he needed six other guys with him because it just everywhere we went. And that was like logistically one of the interesting things to navigate, especially um, in, you know, cause we weren't like in big metropolitan cities for the most part, you know, Lexington's big, but it's not LA. It's not New York city or, or Miami or anything like that. 
but you know it was a big thing and there weren't a lot of filming going on there uh it was it was an interesting experience and then you know the flip side of that was kirsten who was very quiet and kind of reserved and tried to, you, know, you kind of forgot she was there a lot and she was a sweetheart and i enjoyed working with her but in, he was definitely like here's elvis coming out of the building everywhere we went and, and you know the, the we had a lot of navigating of trying to get him to and from places and she was very smart and probably because she'd been in the business a lot longer than he was about how to get around the crowds and through the crowds without people even noticing she was there. When we were on our, our location shoot in the beginning, that was definitely one of the more logistical things that we had to deal with of just even getting him to and from set. Andy, had, uh, had Cameron worked with Orlando on anything else or was this their first time? It's funny you say that because it brought to mind, we did a Gap commercial. They, they did a series of 30-second uh, or 60-second black and white commercials that were music-based. And I feel like Coen Brothers did one and I feel like Sofia Coppola did one and Cameron did one and they were just vibey commercials shot in black and white and hadn't worked with either of them and wanted to work with Kate Beckinsale. And so she did the commercial and Orlando did the commercial. And that was the first time we had worked with him was on this Gap commercial that we shot out in Pomona one day. And it was, it was fun. It was, you know, it was just basically, it was almost like what Orlando was dealing with on Elizabethtown. It was, it was almost, it was an homage. It was Cameron's homage to a hard day's night where it was just Kate and Orlando walking down the street. And all of a sudden this collective of people started gathering behind them. And then they started picking up the pace and started walking fast and then running and everybody was chasing them, but everybody had a big smile on their face and it was fun. And, uh, and that was it. And it literally was a single shot. And John Toll, in his genius way, John Toll shot it. We were on set, you know, we probably had a 7 a.m. call, something like that. Certainly by 9, 9.30, we had started rehearsing and things. And Kate had these shoes on that I'm sure were very uncomfortable for her to run in. And we kept waiting before we were shooting. We kept rehearsing and rehearsing and rehearsing. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? And I think we finally started shooting around 3.30 in the afternoon. We had broken for lunch. Then we rehearsed again after lunch. That was a whole thing. And I was like, what the hell is going on? And I realized Toll was waiting for magic hour. He was waiting for the light to be perfect <laughs> for us to shoot this thing. So he was coming up with every excuse in the book to delay things before we actually rolled film. Um, but that was our first experience working with Orlando. And I think that probably led to him working on Elizabethtown. And Cameron had always wanted to work with Kirsten. And she had come in on a few other things, but the timing was never right. And she actually had worked, I think, almost two years straight before we got her on Elizabethtown and was ready to take a break. But when she got the call from Cameron, she jumped at it and uh, ended up getting it. And so I think, I feel like she took like a year or a year and a half break after Elizabethtown because she was just exhausted. I remember pictures of her literally asleep on the side of the, like, on the, side of the set between takes and between setups. She was just exhausted. But as Frank said, she was lovely. She was really great and a big music fan. And, and, you know, she was great to have around. She was very cool. That's all I got. <laughs> I, you're lying, Andy. I'm sure if I sit in the quiet spot long enough, you'll come up with another story. I didn't uh, want to get into my gee stories. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll save that for part two guys. Uh, we'll revisit that guys. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for hopping on today. I really enjoyed, uh, revisiting these days with you. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for the invite. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for having you guys. Absolutely. Bye, guys. Bye.
And that's it for Elizabeth Town. If you also enjoyed the episode, please leave us five stars on iTunes. But if you really enjoyed the episode, you can do me a personal favor if you left us a comment. You can also check us out on our Facebook page and podcast below the line. For Twitter and Instagram, you can find us at pod below the line. And if you've got feedback, send email to skid, S-K-I-D, at below the line, one word, dot biz. That's B-I-Z. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and thanks to John Juan for our logo. If you're a fan of the logo, you can pick up t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Just search for Below the Line. Next episode, my guests are all graduates of the DGA training program, as am I. So rather than discussing a single film project, we'll be talking about the trainee experience specifically and guild membership in general. Join us in two weeks.